my wife's family is here this morning. And I'm always excited about that because my wife is one of five siblings. And so whenever they're here, the worship attendance like shoots through the roof. Uh, so I'm glad that they're here. Um, I told Craig that attendance bump, it may buy me another week. So that's a big deal. So we are glad that you're here with us uh, worshiping this morning. I uh, hope you had a great Easter last week, um, whether you were here or whether you were at a different church or whether you didn't go to church at all. Hope you got time to eat some good food, spend some time with family, spend some time with friends. Um, but more importantly, I do hope that you were able to take Easter and reflect on what it's all about. Because we put all this emphasis on the Easter bunny and egg hunts and everything, and that's all well and good. But ultimately what really matters is what Christ did for us on the cross. That's what it's about. And so I pray that regardless of where you are on your walk with Christ, maybe you're a new Christian, maybe you're an old Christian, or maybe you're not a Christian. I pray that Easter was an opportunity for you to examine what Scripture says about Christ, about the crucifixion, and about the resurrection. Because if it's true, and our church believes it is true, if that's true it becomes the most important event in history. And so you can't just stay neutral about it. There's got to be some kind of response. So with that, the past two weeks, we have been looking through the last week of Jesus' life. We spent two Sundays looking at that last week. And that last week consisted of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. He went and said some things that really ruffled the feathers of the religious leaders, the people who had power. And then after that, his, one of his own disciples decides to betray him for some money. So he's betrayed, he's arrested, he's put on trial, the cards are stacked against him. The religious leaders want him gone, even if that means they have to lie. Even if that means they have to bring forth false witnesses. They just want him gone. In their mind, the ends justifies the means. So he's arrested, he's put on trial, and ultimately he's handed over to be crucified. And so he dies a despicable death. He dies one of the most painful, most insulting, most embarrassing deaths you can possibly imagine in that day. But he doesn't stay dead. He's buried, and he's there for about three days, but then he rises from the grave. And that changes everything. And from that point forward, he gives his disciples this mission to go out and make disciples of all nations to reduplicate themselves. And then he ascends to be with God. And as you look at it, you might be thinking, well, that's kind of the end of the story. And in a sense, it is. It's kind of the end in terms of Jesus' life on earth. So today, we're going to be starting going through the Gospel of Mark. And you may think, well, wait a minute. If we just talked about the end of Jesus' life, why would we, we, why would we be starting through the Gospel of Mark? And there's two reasons why I think it's important that we start through the Gospel of Mark. Number one, because sometimes I think personally, that parts of Jesus' life kind of get neglected. Because think about it. I mean, we have Christmas and we have Easter. Those are the two major holidays in Christianity. Christmas celebrates the beginning of Jesus' life. Easter celebrates the end of Jesus' life. But there's no holiday to celebrate what happened in the middle. And so sometimes we focus so much on Christmas and so much on Easter that we forget that Jesus did other stuff besides just being born and being killed. There were other things that happened. So that's why we're going to be going through the Gospel of Mark. The other reason is that sometimes, like I said a few weeks ago, when you see the end of a movie, if you walk in late into the room and you see the end of a movie, if the ending is really great, it makes you more eager to hear the beginning. It makes you wonder, okay, well, what happened that led to this? What kind of things caused this to happen? 
So I hope that as you heard about the end of Jesus' life over the past couple weeks, I pray that it will make you more eager to hear about the rest of Jesus' life right now. So we're going to be going through the Gospel of Mark. We're not going to go through every single verse, but we're going to go through some of the high points, some of the important, significant moments of Jesus' life, some of the miracles, some of the teachings, some of the healings, some of the parables. Not verse by verse, but we're going to look at a good amount of it. So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Mark chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, we're going to have verses up on the screen looking at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But then there's also Bibles in the chairs around you, so if you want to follow along there, do that. But before we start reading, I do want to give you a little bit of background about the Gospel of Mark. Well, it was written around 70 A.D. Most people assume that Mark is written around 70 A.D., and that makes it the earliest gospel that is written. And the reason that matters is that some important things were happening around 70 A.D. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus prophesied that Jerusalem was going to fall. The city was going to be overtaken and destroyed. Well, that happens in 70 A.D. So there's some pretty important things happening right around the time that Mark is writing this. And another thing that's important about the date is that being this written in 70 A.D., that's only about 35 years after Jesus' life and his death. And the reason that matters is that the closer you get to something chronologically, the more accurate it has to be. Because if Mark was just writing random stuff down, there would have been people who were still alive who would have said, now wait a minute, that's not what happened. I was there. That was only 35 years ago. Yeah, you know, 35 years sounds like kind of a long time, but I remember how this all went down. You can't just make stuff up. You can't just exaggerate stuff. And so Mark, writing this stuff, he has some accountability. Because people who saw what happened are still alive. So he can't just be making stuff up. And that ought to be an encouragement to us as we read this, that this is an accurate depiction of Jesus' life. It's an accurate depiction of Jesus' ministry. So it's written in 70 AD in Jerusalem. So who's Mark? Who's Mark? Well, we don't really know a whole lot about Mark, to be honest. Uh, we know he's not an apostle. There's some theories that say that he was Peter's personal assistant, that he went around with Peter and he kind of wrote some letters for Peter. He was kind of Peter's secretary. And so one day, Peter sat Mark down and said, hey, you know what? I think it's important that we record what I remember about Jesus. That's one theory. But ultimately, we really don't know who Mark is. But we have a lot to work with here. So starting out in chapter 1, verse 1, the Gospel of Mark, now that you have a little bit of background, start reading in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And before we even move on to verse 2, there's some important things in that verse I want to look at. Number 1, Mark says the beginning. The beginning. And the reason that matters is that if you were a person in Mark's time, if you were a Jewish person in Mark's time and you heard the beginning, there's a book that you immediately thought of. Does anybody want to guess what it is? Genesis. People think of Genesis when they hear the beginning because the first three words of Genesis, in the beginning. And so Mark isn't just doing that by coincidence. He's doing it for a reason. He's trying to prove that the story he's about to tell, the guy that he's about to tell us about, is the fulfillment of things way back to Genesis. He is the continuation of what God was doing in Genesis. From the fall of man, Jesus is there. Jesus is there from the very beginning. Jesus is uncreated. And so Jesus is not just some random guy popping up on the scene. Jesus is the continuation of what God has been doing all along. He's the continuation of that story. 
And then Mark calls this his gospel. Well, what is gospel? I mean, how many of you have used the word gospel in your regular vocabulary in the last week? Probably not. So what is a gospel? A gospel means good news. And the word gospel was often used whenever there was a political victory or a royal birth. And so this was a word that was kind of specially reserved for big, important, significant events that were good. And so for Mark to be using that word, he's saying that, guys, something is happening here. Something has happened and something is coming that is important and it's good news. It's gospel. And then finally, he says, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark makes no bones about it from the first verse that he has something to prove. He is trying to prove something. He's not just saying, well, I'm going to record some facts and let you come to your own conclusion. He's saying, you know what? Here's the truth. Jesus is the Son of God. Here's why. Read the rest of this and you will find out why Jesus is the Son of God. It will be proven to you. So Mark has something in mind from the very beginning as he's writing. Moving on to verse 2, as Josh cited it earlier during the welcome time. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Not a lot had been happening for the Israelites for quite some time. Because after they were freed from exile in Babylon and freed from exile in Assyria, they had kind of gotten a little bit back on their feet. God didn't seem to communicate with them. All of a sudden, there's no voice. There weren't really any prophets going around. There wasn't a lot happening. And so people are sitting back and they're waiting for this Messiah, but they haven't heard from God in so long. They haven't heard from God and they're wondering, should they just stop hoping? Should they just stop even looking forward to this Messiah because they've been waiting for so long and nothing's happening? God's quiet. God is silent. Nothing's going on. And so they look at this verse and they hear, he's going to prepare your way. I'm sending a messenger. And then Mark tells us who that messenger is in verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So this guy comes on the scene named John. And he comes out of the wilderness and he's proclaiming this baptism of repentance. Now, baptism was not something that was totally brand new in the New Testament. In a sense, baptism existed already. In the Old Testament, there were a bunch of rules about things you had to do to stay clean. Things you had to do to stay ceremonially pure. And so they had all these rules. If you did this, that made you unclean. If you did that, that made you impure. And if you were unclean, that meant that you couldn't be associated with the people around you. It meant that people may not come and shop from you if you own a business. It meant that you're not allowed to go to the temple, which is a huge deal. And so people wanted to remain clean at all costs. And so one thing they would do is they would go to the temple and they would baptize themselves. They had this little bath, this ceremonial bath, and if you did something that made you unclean, you'd go, you'd dip yourself in the bath, and then you'd be clean again. But then a week later, something else happens. So you've got to go back to the bath. You've got to dip yourself again. You've got to be clean again. And it was just over and over and over and over. You were never truly clean. And John comes, and he's proclaiming this baptism that's different. 
He's saying, number one, it's not just this momentary thing. It's something bigger than that. It's not just about fulfilling rules and checking off boxes and meeting all the requirements for a week. It's about more than that. Another thing that's different is that John is baptizing the people. They're not baptizing themselves. John is the one doing it. John's the one doing the dipping. And he's encouraging people to repent for the forgiveness of sins. And John is doing something really important here. He's trying to get people ready for something that's about to happen, something that's about to come. If you look in verse 6, Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So what would you do if you're in downtown Indianapolis and a guy comes up to you wearing a shirt made of camel hair, eating bugs, telling you you need to repent? (laughs) You'd probably run away. You'd probably hide your kid's eyes. You'd probably ignore him. You might even call the police because you're thinking this guy's a total weirdo. But the people back then, they wouldn't have thought anything was all that weird about it because that's kind of what prophets did. They were kind of out there. They dressed weird. They lived in the woods. They kind of did all this weird stuff. And so people see John, and they're not too freaked out by him. And so they listen to him. They go out and they get baptized. So John is fulfilling a prophet's role. He's doing what prophets do. He looks like a prophet. He smells like a prophet. He must be a prophet. So John is prophesying, but there's a little bit something different about his prophecy. In the past, prophets had typically tended to focus on the past. And I know that flies in the face of when you hear prophet, you kind of tend to think, oh, well, prophets predict the future. Well, that's true at a certain level. There is some presence of prophets predicting the future. But even more than that, kind of like Carl said, prophets often would come on the scene when Israel was abandoning God, when the people were forgetting the commandments that God had given them, when they were straying from what they knew they needed to do. The prophets would come on the scene and say, hey, guys, don't forget what God did for you. Don't forget Egypt. Don't forget that you were slaves. Don't forget that you made this covenant. And sometimes they would listen and sometimes they wouldn't. So prophets a lot of times were focused on the past. But here John is focusing on the future. He's not coming and saying, hey, guys, remember what God did in the past. Don't forget. He's saying, guys, be ready for what God is about to do. Be ready for what is coming. Because there's someone coming who's stronger than I, and I'm not even worthy to be his slave. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals for him. And my baptism is great, but my baptism is nothing compared to what he's going to do. I baptize you with water. He's going to baptize you with more than that. John's getting getting people ready for what is about to come. And we see what's coming in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So John is setting the stage for Jesus to come. Isaiah says that he is making a pathway that he is making a way, that he is leveling the road for what Jesus is about to do. He's setting the stage. And I have one question to ask. As I read this, I thought about this. 
at a certain level, if you're already a follower of Christ, you're kind of in the same boat as John. You're kind of in the same boat as John because I look at it and I think, as followers of Christ, we are called to be setting the stage for people to find out who Christ is. We are called to be leveling the path, setting the pathway for God to work. And the question is, do we do it? Do we make the path straight or do we make them even more curvy than they are before? Do we put obstacles in the path that prevent God from working in people's lives? I recently read a book called Unchristian. It was written a few years ago. And it was surveys from non-Christian people on their perspectives of Christians. And there were six main themes, six main perceptions that non-Christian people had of Christian people. And those were, number one, they were hypocritical. Number two, they were too focused on converts. They were more focused on turning people to Christ and actually getting to know them. They were looking at them as projects. Number three, they hated homosexual people. Number four, they're sheltered. Number five, they're too political. And number six, they're judgmental. So those are the stereotypes that a lot of non-Christian people have of Christians. And that being said, not all stereotypes are accurate. Not every single Christian is judgmental. Not every single Christian is hypocritical. Not every single Christian is too focused on converts. Not every single Christian is sheltered. But those stereotypes exist for a reason. And my question for you and for me is that if we are confirming those stereotypes, we're not making paths straight. We're putting obstacles in the way. So are we confirming those stereotypes or are we showing people that there's something different, that not every Christian meets that stereotype? Because we're called to be setting the stage for Christ to work. And if we're meeting those stereotypes, if we're confirming those assumptions about us, we're not making the path straight. We're making it harder. We're making people want to be even more distant from God than they already are. Are we making paths straight? So John's baptizing, and he baptizes Jesus. And oftentimes, as you look at verses 9 through 11, the question comes up, well, why would Jesus get baptized? Because traditionally, Christianity has always taught that Jesus lived a perfect life, that Jesus never sinned, that Jesus never messed up. And yet John is baptizing people for the forgiveness of sins. So why would Jesus need to get baptized if he hasn't sinned? What's the point? Well, we often have these answers, and one of the answers we give is that, well, Jesus was just setting an example for us. And that's somewhat true. That's definitely true. That could be the case. But there's even more than that going on. We see in that statement about heaven being torn open that God is coming on our level. You know, so many religions focus on us trying to attain God's level. But Christianity's basis is about the fact that God came to our level. God came down to us. And so the reason Jesus got baptized was not just to be an example for us, but it was to show solidarity with us. Sinners like us. People who need to get baptized. Jesus doesn't need to, but he does. Because he's on our level. He's communicating with us. You know, back then, I don't mean to burst anybody's bubble or anything, but if you didn't know this already, God does not live in the sky. Okay? Like, I'm just making sure you know that. I know, I know you, see, uh, you, know, you see commercials where angels are on clouds playing harps and they're eating Philadelphia cream cheese. Uh, the truth is that God does not live in the sky. Okay? 
It's not like you can take a rocket ship and get, you know, X amount of height and then run into heaven. Uh, That's not the case. But the reason we see heaven being torn open is that people in this time believe that God lived in the sky. And so when they see heaven being torn open, that's significant. Because it's saying that there is a separation between God and man that is being broken. There is a barrier that is being removed. God is coming down on our level, and we see that in Jesus himself. God's coming down to us. God's meeting us where we're at. That's a huge deal. And this dove comes down and basically affirms Jesus' ministry. It's almost like the father is giving the son his blessing at this point. He's saying, go on. You're ready for the mission I've given you. You're ready to start doing what you came to do. And so he starts doing it. But before then, he does something that a lot of people did before they started a big mission from God. And we see that in verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, Mark does not have as detailed of an account of Jesus' temptation as some of the other Gospels do. But in the other Gospels, we see that Satan is tempting Jesus with food, because Jesus is human. You're going to be hungry after 40 days. He tempts him with food. He tempts him to test God, almost a test of doubt. He says, hey, Jesus, get up on top of this temple, and if God is really God, then you can jump off and I'll save you, right? Well... That's not, the way we're tempt- that's not the way we're really taught to look at God. You know, we could go out and have a picnic on 69 and say, well, if God is God, then he'll save me. God is not going to save you if you have a picnic on 69. I'm just telling you right now. And so Satan tempts God, tempts Jesus to test God. And Jesus says, nope, don't put the Lord your God to the test. And then finally, Satan tempts Jesus with power. He says, hey, look at all this land. Look at all these people. They can all be yours if you just follow me. If you give up listening to your father and you listen to me instead. And Jesus says, no. He stays loyal to God. And when he does that, he does the thing that Adam and Eve didn't do. When Adam and Eve were tempted, they gave in. Jesus doesn't. This is something brand new. That's why Paul sometimes refers to Jesus as the second Adam. Because Jesus faced the temptation that Adam did, but Jesus won. He didn't fail the way Adam and Eve did. And that gives us hope. So he's in the wilderness and he's tempted. Moses did the same thing in Deuteronomy chapter 9. Moses, before he was given the Ten Commandments, he spent time fasting in the woods. That's kind of what spiritual leaders do when they're about to start a mission from God. And so Jesus' ministry begins. Moving on to verse 14. After John was arrested, John got himself in some trouble with some political leaders. And so John eventually is arrested and killed for it. But after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You know, sometimes I think we look at the gospel and we kind of limit what the gospel truly is. Because we look at the gospel, and in our individualistic society, we think that the gospel is all about me going to heaven when I die. And it's about more than that. 
The gospel is so much more than just me getting to go to heaven. The gospel is about the kingdom of God. The gospel is about the creation that God made in Genesis being redeemed, being returned to its former glory. It's about captives being set free. It's about the blind seeing. It's about the lame walking. That's what the gospel is. And Jesus says, repent and believe in it, because the kingdom of God is at hand. Something is happening. Something new is coming. And you get to be a part of it. We saw that when the heavens are torn open. They're not just gently slit open. They are ripped open. Because God is coming on the scene. Something new is happening. Closing out our passage in verse 16. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Why would these guys follow Jesus? They probably had not heard much about him at all. They maybe heard some rumors, but in a sense, he's like a stranger. And he's coming up to them and saying, hey, guys, follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. And they leave it all behind. And in the case of James and John, they're, they're apparently doing pretty well. Yeah, they're not rich. They're still fishermen, but they're doing well enough to have hired servants. So the business must be doing pretty well. So why would they leave that to follow Jesus? Why would they leave that stability, that security of good business? They're getting their needs met. They have food on the table. Why would they give that all up? Really, we don't know for sure why they would give that all up. But I have a hunch that maybe they're just looking for a new beginning. They're just looking for a clean slate. Yeah, fishing has gone well. It's met their needs, but they just know there's something more. That God has bigger plans than just having them sit and fish all day. And so they drop it and they leave Jesus. Or they follow Jesus. They leave their father. You know, I think we're all, at times, looking for new beginnings. I think at times we're all looking for a fresh start. We're all looking for a clean slate. And that's what Jesus offers these guys. And that's what Jesus offers every single one of us. Because that same invitation that's given out to them is given out to sinners like us. To become fishers of men. To get on board with what God is doing. To forget about the everyday routine and get on board with an adventure that God is inviting us to be a part of. Because he's doing something in the world. Something new is coming. And these guys leave everything to be a part of it. So now the question is, Are we willing to leave everything to be a part of it? Are we willing to leave everything to be a part of the kingdom of God? To be a part of what God is doing in the world? To be a part of that heaven ripping open and God coming on our level? Because he's inviting us. He's inviting us to be a part of that story like we talked about last week. Jesus is doing something amazing. Something new is starting. And we'll look at that next week more in detail. Let's pray.
Father God, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for his birth and his life and his death and his resurrection. And God, I pray that as we take time to examine his ministry, I pray that we'll learn just as much from his life as we did from his death and from his resurrection. And I pray that we will be a part and that we will accept that invitation to be fishers of men that we will open our eyes and find that new beginning that Christ is offering us, that new beginning where we can leave our sin behind, we can leave our regrets behind, we can leave our mistakes behind and focus on what is coming. Focus on what God is doing right now, not on what we've messed up in the past. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for Christ's cross that would end his life here on earth. Through that we have hope. We have the opportunity for forgiveness. And I pray that we'll make that decision to be a part of the adventure you're calling us to be a part of. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. After the service is over, we're going to have a couple of our elders sitting on the sides of the room. If you have any questions about our church, if you have any questions about becoming a follower of Christ, or if you just have something you'd like to pray about, they'd be happy to talk to you. I'd be happy to talk to you. We hope you'll make that decision. You lead me, Lord, I will follow where you lead me, Lord, I will go. Come and heal me, Lord, I will follow where you lead me, Lord, I will go. If you Yeah.